We're going to shift our attention now to the question that we asked last week and began to answer last week, but but we'll continue to answer this week, and that is, can you trust your Bible? But before I begin that, I want want to tell you about a guy named Uncle Oscar. Now, Uncle Oscar had never flown in a plane in his life. He'd just as soon ride a bicycle across the country than get on a plane. But there came a situation, a family situation, where he had to fly, and so they put him on a plane. And he flew halfway across the country, and he finally landed at the airport. Now, all the the cousins had decided they wanted to meet Uncle Oscar at the airport because they were just so curious as to how he handled this first flight. And so here he comes off the gateway and down by the baggage claim, and finally they see him, and they rush over to him, and and they were just so eager. And they said, well, tell us, Uncle Oscar, what did you think about flying? He looked at him, he said, you know, wasn't as bad as I thought, but I never put my whole weight down. (laughs) Not sure Uncle Oscar actually trusted that plane. And trust is important. As we began to lay the foundation and ask the question last week, can you trust your Bible? That's a key question. It'll affect much of what you do in life. Can you really trust your Bible? Can you put your full weight down? And so today we want to begin to delve a little deeper into answering that question. And and we want to engage the mind as well as the heart. Remember, the Bible never tells us to check our brains at the door, but instead we're told to come, let us reason together. And so let's go ask the Lord to open both our minds and hearts right now. Father God, we do pray that you would speak to us through your word, that you would speak to us in power, that you would speak to us in truth, and that we might receive what you have to give to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week I mentioned my studies in the religious studies department at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In mentioning that, uh, I mentioned that it was not like Sunday school, that I really never, I did not have an evangelical professor in any of my studies during any of my years there at Chapel Hill, and I was there an extra half semester, uh, extra half a year, but uh, even then I didn't have one. It was not from an evangelical, conservative, Christian viewpoint at all. In fact, I don't know of anyone there who believed the Bible to be God's true, reliable word who was teaching. A lot of students, but who was teaching. There is right now a chairman of the religious studies department named Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is is an intelligent, engaging man and one of the most popular professors on campus. Bart Ehrman is not a Christian, and yet he is a New Testament scholar. He's written a number of books, 27 in fact. That's only 27 more than I've written. And he had at least one that I know of that made the New York Times bestseller list. And that was called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. You can see with a title like that, a lot of people might grab it off the shelves at Barnes & Noble or something just because it looks so interesting, so engaging. I want to share with you a quote from his book. He he writes, what good is it to say that the autographs, that is the originals, were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only, listen to this, error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them, evidently in thousands of ways. 
There are more variations, he says, among our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Now, what, what do you and I do with something like that? How, how do we confront it? How do we deal with it? Well, to, most of us probably don't want to deal with something like that. We just kind of wander off saying, well, says you. Or, or perhaps we get together over coffee with some friends and, and after hearing a statement like that, and we would go, well, that man just doesn't know what he's talking about. But very few of us would be able to walk up to him and say, Dr. Ehrman, I disagree with your assessment, and I want to tell you why I do believe the Bible is true. I want to help us to be able to do that. I almost, uh, I, I almost uh, decided that today I, I would wear my, my black robe and my doctoral hood uh, because it's going to be a little scholarly, but I do not want us to get lost among the trees. And so what I want to do is to try to present this in a way that scholars wrestle with it, but also so that you, as a layman, a person who knows the Bible but probably doesn't have a degree in it, in a way that you can say, okay, I I get this, and I understand it, and it gives me a greater appreciation for this word that I hold in my hands. Now, the Bible was not written in this form to start with okay it it wasn't written down and slapped together in leather it wasn't you didn't have an app for it because well there wasn't there weren't any apps back then what they wrote on was on something called parchment and parchment had a lifespan of about 40 to 50 years in the best of circumstances the more it was circulated read handled the more brittle it became. And so we don't have any of the autographa, which is the official term, but basically the autographs, the original documents. So the question is, does this mean, since we don't have the originals, all we have is copies, can we or can we not count on those copies to be accurate so that our Bible is accurate? Scholars who study ancient text have some basic methods to determine how reliable ancient documents are. And they ask primarily two questions. The first is, how many copies of the manuscript do we have? So how many manuscript copies do we have? We don't have the original, but how many manuscript copies do we have? And the second question is, how close in time are those manuscripts to the original? Okay, you getting the picture here? How many copies do we have and how close in time are those copies to the original document. Now, what you're going to see is when we compare ancient New Testament texts, what we're going to discover is that there is overwhelming evidence, especially when compared to other historical texts of the first century. And so what I'd like to do is actually begin, not with the Bible, but to begin with considering some important non-biblical literature, historians, The earliest manuscripts of the works of first century historians, such as, you may have heard these names, Josephus, Tacitus, or Suetonius. I dare any of you to name your child Suetonius. This is probably the earliest version of a boy named Sue. For those of you unfamiliar with Johnny Cash, look it up on iTunes. Okay. 
Okay, you see, these guys lived in the first century. That's where their lifespan is, at least part of it. And so they were written in the, early, the late first, early second century. What about their literature? Well, the works of Josephus, Tacitus, and Suetonius, the manuscript copies that we have, the closest ones that we have are dated to the 9th through the 11th centuries. That means that our first manuscript evidence of the writing of these historians are more than four, excuse me, 800 years after the originals were written. That is an 800-year gap between the original document and the first copy that we have. Go ahead and show that, that slide. Okay, 800 years between when they wrote it and the copies, we, the earliest copies that we have. Now, here's what you need to understand. Historians, people who use these ancient texts, even though there's an 800-year gap between the originals and the copy, the first copies that we have, historians believe that what they have in their copies is an accurate representation of what was written by the historian. Even those 800 years between the originals and the copies, they believe that they are, on the whole, accurate. Well, what about the number of manuscripts? We said that was a question that the scholars asked. Well, there are 75 documents, manuscripts, that's what the MSS is, It's just kind of abbreviation. 75 manuscripts for Josephus, 133 manuscripts for Tacitus, and Sue gets 200. Okay, so he's the big winner here. Now you look at that and you go, okay, well, that's not too bad. At least somebody got 200 scraps of documents here that we can go back and, and try to compare. Now, compared to other ancient literature like this, the number of New Testament manuscripts is absolutely off the charts. In Greek manuscripts alone, there are 500, 838 as of last count. There are 10,000 plus Latin manuscripts and 5,000 plus manuscripts in other languages. Even I can see that that's over 20,000 total Manuscripts, that is, documents or parts of documents that are related specifically to the New Testament. If we had none of them, however, if all of them were to miraculously disappear right now, we could still reconstruct nearly the, nearly the entire New Testament based on the more than one million quotations by our early church fathers in sermons, in letters, and in commentaries. In other words, not only do we have the evidence for the actual copies of the documents, we also have quotes from the early church fathers that are written in their commentaries, letters, and their, their um, uh, sermons. That you could go back and you could say, okay, this is that, which we have in our New Testament today. Now, why is this important? Because the objective of New Testament scholarship is this, to get as close to the autographer, the original, as possible. If God inspired the originals, which we argue a couple of weeks ago, that's exactly what he did, that he inspired the originals, then we want to make sure that the copy we hold in our hands is as close to that original as possible. And the more copies you have, 
the better. Why? Because it allows Bible scholars to compare copies and to see if through the years there have been any, any scribal errors and then to be able to correct those so that we can count on the New Testament we have in our hand. Now, we mentioned that there were up to 200 early manuscript copies of Suetonius. How many copies, that, well, we got the, the copies. How, what's the gap, excuse me, between the earliest New Testament copies and the originals when they would have been written? It's not 800 years. The earliest New Testament manuscript that we have, a portion of John's Gospel, is from around A.D. 125 and has been dated by one scholar, reputable scholar, to possibly been written in the 90s. Now, when was the Gospel of John written? Probably somewhere in the 60s. This is what that piece looks like. It is called P52 or John Ryland's fragment. It was actually stuck in a library in England and he discovered this and was able to begin to translate it. On the front and back of this are portions of the Gospel of John and it's it's been dated as late as perhaps at 125 but perhaps as early as the 90s. That means that this document would have been copied within the lifetime of John. Now think about this. The earliest copy that we have of any those historical writings are between five and eight hundred years from the time that they were, were actually written down. But the earliest manuscript that we have of the New Testament is less than a one hundred year gap and perhaps even just a couple of decade gap between the writing of the Gospels and the manuscript that we have. Now, that's not the only manuscript, that's just the earliest manuscript that we have. We have a dozen manuscripts from the second century. That's the 100s. We have, a, we have 64 manuscripts from the third century. That's the 200s. And we have 48 manuscripts from the fourth century. That's the 300s. For a total of 124 manuscripts within 300 years of the actual writing of the Gospels. Now, you're sitting there going, that's a lot of numbers, a lot of dates. What do I do with all this? Daniel Wallace, uh, an eminent New Testament scholar who is a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, concludes that the amount of manuscript evidence that we have for the New Testament is an embarrassment of riches. What he's trying to say is, compared to the, the evidence that we have for any of these other Writings at any time in ancient Rome or Greece, this is absolutely overwhelming. It would be any of you see the, the, the newest Hobbit movie? Some of you see this? The smog, not smog like they have in LA or Beijing. No, you seen this? Okay. You may, well, maybe you've seen the thing. There's this dragon that hoards gold. And if you've seen the, the previews, you may have seen this. And it's just this huge chamber that's just filled with gold. That's pretty much what Dr. Wallace is saying here. That is the kind of evidence we have for the New Testament that we can get our hands on. And more is being discovered every day. Now, 
There may be a lingering question floating around in your brain based on something that I said a little bit earlier. I said that biblical scholars compare the copies to see if there have been scribal errors so that those can be corrected. And so, the question then is, are there errors in the manuscripts, that is the copies, that that might undermine our evidence in the Bible? And I want to tell you, there are errors, but they shouldn't undermine your confidence in the Bible. And here's why. First of all, you need to understand how this thing happened. There was no Kinko's, no Office Depot, no place that you could go and have photocopies made. If you wanted to copy the original, you made the copy by hand. Typically, scribes, that is, people who were literate, did this. Now, when you go and you add up in all the 20,000 plus New Testament documents that we have, you add them all up, you end up with, and it's, the number varies. I'm giving you the high number, okay? Maybe as high as 400,000 variants, that is, differences in these copies. Now, some of you are going, well, let me just take this thing right now and toss it in the trash. If there are 400,000 possible variants in the copies that we have, how can I ever know that this is true? Well, because, let me help you understand this a little bit. What is a variant? Let's suppose that, um, well, you had an example today but it was caused by a computer. You had an example of a misspelling of a name, right? Okay. How many errors was that? It was one error, but how many copies were there? 200, 250, 300? So it's not one error. It's 301 errors. And so if, a, if a, an author, let, here's typically what happens. It's a letter in the Greek that's left off the end of a word that changes in no way the meaning of the Greek word. That letter's left off by one scribe here, and it's copied 4,000 times. It's not counted as one error. It's counted as 4,000 and one errors. That is the vast majority of variance errors, if you will, that are contained in the New Testament manuscripts. When you add it all up, there's between 99 and 99.5% of the variants that are due to scribal errors alone. They can be identified and they can be corrected. Even Bart Ehrman, the gentleman I referenced earlier, who's not a believer, even Bart Ehrman does not believe that the New Testament is reliable but he affirms the overwhelming majority of textual variants are insignificant and meaningless. Okay? And that's somebody who doesn't believe it to be true. But just looking at it as a scholar with, with, with a, uh, no, no desire to prove it at all, he's saying the vast majority are completely inconsequential. Changes in spelling. Skipping a word when you're writing that you can easily find and easily correct. But what about that less than 1%? The less than 1% of the variance readings, none of them, and I put that in big and bold letters, none of them alter or dilute Christian doctrine or teaching in one way. They affect only that line or only that paragraph and if you were to go and, and cut those out, anything that was disputed like that, cut them completely out of your Bible, it wouldn't change a thing. 
It would not change any doctrine. It would not change any truth. It would not change any teaching. What are we trying to say here? You can rely on your Bible, the one you hold in your hands, to be accurate, true, and reliable. You can build your life on this book, and you can stake your eternity on this book. I have, and I will continue to do so. Well, you say, you know, all that sounds kind of scholarly. Let me bring it back down to earth a little bit. We, a few years ago, had a break-in in the office. We've taken care of that with our security, and we've got everything lined up. That shouldn't be able to happen again without setting off the alarms immediately. But uh, when, after the break-in, the police officer came in, and he wanted to dust for what? Fingerprints. Now, why that? Why, why do people use fingerprints in a criminal investigation? Help identify a person. Because, according to what we know of fingerprints, no two are identical. And so if I can get a thumbprint or an index fingerprint, then I can go and begin to identify uh, who's responsible. Well, God's left some fingerprints too. What are those fingerprints? First of all, the Bible contains fulfilled prophecies. We looked at the external evidence. Now let's look at some internal evidence. In the Bible, there are fulfilled prophecies. There are in your Bible approximately 2,500 prophecies. 2,000 of those or so have already been fulfilled. For instance, in Micah 5.2, the prophet identifies the city of Bethlehem as the place that the Messiah would be born. That was 700 years before it happened. The prophet Zechariah predicted Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That he was. God's fingerprints are all over it when you look at fulfilled prophecy. Something that New Testament scholars in a place like the University of North Carolina will never look. But you and I who believe this to be God's word, we will look there. And it gives us greater confidence in God's word when we see that what he said would come to pass has come to pass. A second fingerprint we find is that the Bible is continually confirmed by archaeological evidence. Archaeology may be the greatest friend that we have to biblical studies. The more they discover, the more it confirms Scripture. There were places in the Bible mentioned, especially in the Old Testament, that some of these guys said that place never existed. It was made up. It was just there to tell a story. And lo and behold, now they find an inscription with the name of that place on it. The more they dig in the Middle East, the more confidence you can have that your Bible is true. The third fingerprint is this. The Bible shows us unity despite its diverse origins. We said earlier that there are over 40 authors with different backgrounds writing on three different continents and three different languages over a period of perhaps 1,600 years, and yet what we see when we open the story from beginning to end is God. Even though there were 40 human authors, there is one divine author, and his fingerprints are all over this book. Let me give you one more fingerprint. The Bible has a supernatural impact on lives. 
The word of God is alive and active and it changes people and changes things. This we know by testimony. And we could open up the mic right now and have you come and ask, how has God's word changed your life? And you'd hear it over and over and over and over again. This is what God's done for me. This is what God's done for my family. This is how God has spoken into my life. This is one of the reasons I was so desperate this year to get you into this word because when you get into this word, this word gets into you and it begins to change you. One of the sweetest things I had, and I'm so sorry that that uh, uh, Laura and Adam had to, to, to leave and go move closer to to their work, but we had uh, a grace group, and Laura was a new Christian, and we were looking at something in the Bible, and we asked, okay, what is this, what is this saying here? And Laura looked at it, and she said, you know, I used to think this, but now that I'm reading it, this is what's true. You see, that's how the Bible changes us. This is not something scholars will ever look at. It, these are depths that they will never probe because these are your personal stories of how God has changed your life through the power and the truth of his word. When you've embraced that God, there is only one God, when you've embraced that that God is holy and righteous and just, when you've embraced that you have sin in your life and you're separated from God and you have no hope of making it back to him, when you embrace that God loved this world so much that he sent a savior, his son Jesus, to die for you is the only hope of our salvation. When you embrace that if we repent and turn from our sins and turn to Christ, receive him as our Savior and Lord, then we have new life. We're born again. We're born from above. We have a new beginning. His mercies are new every morning. When you embrace that, I'm telling you, everything changes. You can count on this. You can stake your life on this, build your life on this. You can count on this for eternity. Because the Bible is not just a book that tells us how to live seven days a week. The Bible's a book that tells us how to have a new life that goes on forever. And you can have that. Perhaps that verse that so many of us learned first Back in vacation Bible school or Sunday school was John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me tell you something. That's either true or it's not. And if it's true, then the onus is now placed on you. What am I going to do about it? Will I place my faith in him? Will I trust him? Will I believe him? Will I follow him? 